welcome. This is Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with the social work perspective. And I am the host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. And I am joined today by my very special guest, Patricia Berenson. Uh, Patricia, you have so many post-nominal titles and you practice in Canada. So if you will, uh, and so I don't miss any, can you please introduce yourself to podcast land? Sure. I am a registered couple and family therapist, uh, marriage and family therapist, slash social worker, slash registered psychotherapist. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's just too much to say. Really, I, I like to say I'm a human being who works with other human beings. I have some training that um, helps me deal with trauma. That's, I would say, my specialty trauma and relationships. And, um, I have, uh, I've been in a partnership for 25 years and I have four children and a little pet dog named Nikki, who is 15 years old. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, I did first learn of you and your work by a resource that was sent out by a prior guest of the podcast, Caitlin, another social worker. And she shared a video from Cascadia Training that is titled Practicing in a Pandemic, Ethical Considerations in Mental Health by Lisa Erickson. And during this training, about 15, no, 18 minutes in, um, there was a little clip of you. And it, I mean, it's only four minutes long. And yeah. I was absolutely like, yes, this is everything right now. So I was just compelled to not only be talking to myself out loud as I'm watching the video, but to reach out and see if you'd be willing to talk to me on the podcast. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Uh, you mentioned three specific things that you've been noticing because you're also a supervisor and you've been noticing this with other clinicians. So that is really what I want to kind of get into with you and explore. The first one is focus fatigue. And that, I mean, as soon as you said it, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, um, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Like there's more information now uh, coming out about, uh, you know, Zoom fatigue, that kind of thing, like people getting like maxed out on Zoom. But what I was hearing from people was they were, they were doing less hours a day um, in terms of seeing clients like seeing clients online <laughs> right and they were like oh my gosh like I'm so tired like if I had to see my full caseload I would be wiped out yeah and you know as we started exploring it um it really became clear to me that that people are just tired because there's such a small focus in our field of awareness so we're used to taking in a whole room whether we're conscious of it or not and just the breadth of the room, the breadth of outside, whatever, it allows for more space for our eyes to kind of breathe, soften. And when we have to narrow our gaze into like paying attention, because we don't, we don't have the same opportunities to kind of take in the vibe in the same way, we have to really look for smaller cues and they're not as easily read online. Mm -hmm. And, and so that causes a lot more stress on our nervous systems and in particular the eyes. So I think people were just feeling really, really tired 
because of that, but really just like, I don't understand this. I'm only doing two sessions <laughs> or three sessions. What's wrong with me? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're, you're just adjusting and your, your eyes are compensating so much more for all of the cues that they normally would take in, in an environment for people who are used to more used to working online. I don't think it's as stressful for them because they're they've accommodated um but nonetheless there there is a lot of stress on the eyes to like even as i'm looking at you now i'm really noticing the difference in how i feel in my body because i'm really focused on on you in particular yeah. on a small screen and and i can feel that in my in my body in my nervous system yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was going to say I, I was just speaking to someone that's a CPA and I thought, well, surely they're not feeling it because they're used to numbers and looking at a screen, but no, they also are feeling it. And I think for clinicians, mental health workers, if they weren't already doing telehealth all the time, like you say, we, we jumped into this with both feet with no easy slide in. And it's so no, exhausting. it was. It was sink or swim for a lot of people, and I was on a lot of threads of panic <laughs> um, with, what do I do? What do I do? How do I do this? And yeah, like scrambling. Like it was, it was, but you know what? That's what the whole world has been doing. The yeah. whole world has been scrambling. Um, and so why would we be any different? We're still human. <laughs> that's right. So the second thing that you mentioned, and I, I meant to tell you too, that uh, this is just audio, so you don't have to worry about your uh, freedom freeze, but that's the second thing that you mentioned was the freedom freeze. Yes. The, the thing about the freedom freeze is just the restriction of movement, the restriction of um, what's, what's happening in our bodies, like we take for granted, even when I'm sitting face to face with a, with a client, um, you know, I can adjust and move and do all kinds of things. And it, it's kind of seen as normal, but when you're doing that on a screen, it's very um, dysregulating and it, it really shifts your focus. And sometimes it's just like, what, what's she doing now? Like, <laughs> or what's he doing? Or, um, because we can't see the whole person. Mm -hmm. And so that restriction is uh, something that we're not used to in our bodies. Like we're used to being able to be free to, um, you know, move, adjust without it being disruptive, dysregulating. And even like online, like I think I, I showed in the video, like you might be just gesturing as you normally would, but your gestures, because they're so, your hands are in front of you, it, it can really feel intrusive. And for people with trauma histories, um, it can be really, really threatening. Right. Um, and like, but we're just trying to do what we normally do, but it doesn't come across mm -hmm. um, just uh, on video, which makes me wonder why, maybe that's why news anchor people always have their hands kind of like, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, if you're, they're going all over the place, it's, it's very distracting and yeah hard to pay attention to it's like whoa what's coming at me isn't that funny that in person it yeah you're right i hadn't thought of it but in person you don't pay much attention unless they're overly exaggerating their hands all the time 
that it's not, it's just a normal thing. Normal way we talk is emote with our hands. And mm -hmm. yeah, on the news, they really don't do that. Yeah. We gesture and that's, yeah. that's our natural way of communicating. And if we went to a country where we didn't know the language, that would be how we would communicate is gestures right. to try to get our point across. So, um, yeah, it's just something that we, we can't do as easily. So there is that restriction that causes a further um, uh, stress on the body because we're mm -hmm. in, like, we're so limited in our, in our scope of movement. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, and I didn't have this written down, but as you're talking, it's definitely something I'm going to bring back with me to the team, is in the few times that we are seeing people in person, we're having to wear masks. And we've had the conversation yeah. about whether we can wear just a face shield if they're not COVID positive because you can't see those facial gestures. And exactly. we are having to gesture even more in person with our mask on. And I wonder how that's affecting people that we are not even aware of because we're trying to get our point across or smile with our face or this kind of thing mm -hmm. to be safe. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a whole, that, that whole mask situation is a whole different um arena in terms of how patients uh would be perceiving people uh because it doesn't look friendly right so that's going to put people more on edge because it doesn't look friendly they can't see your face that is how we attune to danger or safety mm -hmm. i look at you i listen to my environment and then I get these cues like, okay, it's all right. The things are okay. But you get these strange people coming with masks on. It, it's, it's very dysregulating. And like, I love how some places are putting their picture on their PPE equipment, like on their gowns, so that people know, oh, that's who that is. Because it, it, it's, it's like, who are you? Like, I, I can't see you. I, you're not familiar. Like, I don't, are you the doctor I saw yesterday? Are you the same hospice care person? I, you know, like, maybe they would be able to recognize you by your voice. But it's, it's very, very challenging, mm -hmm. I, I think, for people who are ill right now to be in a hospital. And, and for, for any healthcare worker, super hard. I'm going to put a pin in that because I do want to come back to the trauma-informed care piece. But to finish up with the video. That's great. Yeah, we'll talk more about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to leave out the force field or as mm -hmm. I was thinking of it as forced field because mm -hmm. it is, <laughs> I haven't heard this term since the military, but being voluntold to do something outside of what you would normally do. I love that. Well, I, I was thinking about it because of like my own reaction. Like I, I don't know about you, but I hate being told what to do. I personally don't like it. And for the most part, there are a lot of people I know who don't like it. Yeah. And, and so we are doing things that we would prefer not to do, but we are voluntold to do it because it, it, we're able to support ourselves, our society, our family, our friends, our neighbors, by, by physically distancing ourselves. So we're doing that, but not because we really want to, but because we need to. It's part of how we're going to stay safe. It's part of 
how we can care for one another. And that's like pretty unprecedented, very, very challenging for us. And so just that, yes, we're submitting to it. We're saying yes to it. Mm-hmm. But on the inside, I think there's a little middle finger coming up that we would prefer <laughs> not to. Yeah. You know, like, and it's just like, it's because we didn't have that free choice in the sense of like, oh yeah, I'd really like to do online counseling. And I'm, I'm going to do that. No, we just kind of, like you said, got thrown in. Mm-hmm. So and, and all at once, not like, hey, let's try this out with a couple of people. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, those three things are what you're talking about in the Mm-hmm. the video and they just really resonated not just with me but some of my other coworkers too were saying yeah that that makes absolute sense yeah so I, when i went to look you up and contact you i did go to your website patriciaberenson.com and i saw that your org patricia berenson and associates trauma healing center of london which is in ontario canada uh, yes counseling and psychology services and then i saw that you uh specialize in that trauma-informed care and just this last year, uh, our hospice has really been focused on trying to coalesce with people in the field that are trauma experts and get something out there as a standard for end of life care. Because what we've seen is when, when you try to find, you find end of life care, standards of care, and you find trauma informed care. But I really have not seen, and even when I Google it, all I find is the little tiny summit that we did. Uh, about trauma-informed care at end of life. And so I wondered, and, and as we're talking about this mask situation, it really is bringing it up. We had a oxygen concentrator at a patient's house, the sound of which, when it was turned on, simulated a bomb sound in Iraq. And so we mm-hmm. had a family member have a very strong reaction to that. And so yeah. those kind of things, just being aware of sounds and everything. But now that you... We're mentioning it and as we're talking through this whole people have medical trauma people have trauma from being in the hospital it doesn't have to be sexual or physical abuse no and no so it's I just wanted your thoughts on that <laughs> it's it's amazing um what something like covid19 or the coronavirus is eliciting in people mm-hmm. and as as healthcare providers, as social workers working in the helping profession, I don't know that you can be prepared for every single thing because we don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's helpful, I think, to to do informed planning with with patients. Like I, I know when I'm helping people negotiate going into surgery or preparing, um, one of the things one of the things that is really, really important is information. Mm-hmm. Letting people know what's happening, giving the family members information about what the last stages of death look like, what they sound like. Mm-hmm. Because for a lay person who's just coming in, we don't have a clue unless we've unless we're around health health professionals like and that's our career we don't know what that is we don't understand um how long things take when they stop drinking or eating or things like the death rattle and how death can be sometimes really calm and sometimes it it really is very scary i think people need that information so that they know what they're encountering and that that this is normal and 
like just you can't err on that side. Like I think in the past is always like, well, let's not tell them because we don't know how long it's going to be. And, you know, there's more of that caution, but I really think sharing as much information, especially with family members um, and for the person who's going through it. Another thing is, is informed consent all the way along in treatment. Mm-hmm. So having conversations with patients and saying, you know, this is Joanne. I'm here to take your blood. I'm uh, thinking of doing it in your left arm. Uh, would that be okay with you? Mm-hmm. Like, like really step by step, gaining the consent of that person. And not everyone is going to say, "Oh, sure, do this." But to to be able to let people know who you are, what you're doing. Oh, it will hurt. There'll be a prick. And you'll feel this and then, and then it will be over and I'll stay with you until you feel settled or those kinds of things. I mean, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people already do that, but it's important to name it because of what I hear from clients uh, who have really had mishandled um, medical interventions. And that is becoming more more and more an area of trauma. Because Mm -hmm. the medical system is so used to dealing with things day in and day out that they really forget how important uh, patient care is, how important bedside manner is, how important it is to take time and not give the impression that you're rushed, you've got to get going, you know, working on your chart while you're talking to somebody, like to really look people in the eye. Mm -hmm. Like there's small, normal things that, would be considered really just really good social graces, but it's amazing how they don't translate sometimes with um, medical professionals. And I don't believe it's because people are intentionally wanting to be, you know, ignorant or rude. I think they're just overworked Mm -hmm. and they're not able to really be in the moment because they feel the pressure of like, Oh my gosh, I've seen like 50 more patients today. Oh my gosh. Right. But sometimes you can you can slow down maybe for three or four seconds and really in presence when you're with somebody, that can feel as luxurious as a five minute conversation. So it doesn't always have to be in time, but it really needs to be like I'm seeing you, I'm saying your name, you know, Mr. Henderson, uh, so glad to see you. Um, would you like me to call you Mr. Henderson or would you like me to call you George? Mm-hmm. Like those kinds of considerations are going to go a long way in, um, in mitigating people having a trauma response. Yeah, we, we have patients that are both in facilities and at home. And I know our aides are really focused on talking people through because you're touching people in private parts, you know, and whether or not they've had yeah. an actual physical or sexual trauma or they've had a medical trauma or, you know, mm-hmm. catheterization that went wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. all kind of things that we, they might not be able to tell us and maybe even the family might not be able to tell us because maybe they have dementia. And so taking that into consideration and just yeah. slowing down, watching the physical responses of people. I think that really is where our biggest disconnect in trying to mm-hmm. get things aligned is, is people that are in that space that aren't able to give informed consent or at least informed consent as we're used to. (laughs) 
Yeah. And even if people don't understand, you know, so even a person who has dementia, there's a way that our nervous system hears kindness in words and they may not understand it, but their nervous system might be able to hear like, oh, that's, that's a soothing voice. That's, that's a voice that sounds kind. Mm -hmm. Um, and like not treating them differently with informed consent, like all the same things apply, but you, you have an awareness that the person that you're talking to maybe can't reciprocate it back to you, but that doesn't mean you just go in like a Mack truck <laughs> right? and do your, whatever you're, you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I think it's pretty easy when we don't get that response back from a patient from a client that uh, like, and I don't mean this to be like really harsh, but I think we in some ways dehumanize them mm-hmm. and see it maybe as a possibility to take a shortcut or maybe be less patient. I, I just think that that can happen because they are more vulnerable and, and we're often pressed for time and, yeah, I think that's how a lot of, yeah, just a lack of care can happen with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm really thinking now about, I really like that idea of the picture. I wonder if we make them, maybe we can do laminated pictures we can bring in, even if we can't attach them to ourselves, we can at least have them to say, you know, here's who we are. That'd be amazing. And if you have a picture that with you and a pet. Right. I was just or that. like, you know, something like that, because that makes you more human. Our volunteers, or our outreach program is talking about having people send in um, pictures and each discipline has a certain, it's pictures that we've taken and each discipline has a, a theme. So one discipline is animals, one is nature, one is, you know, mm. self-care. And we're going to, they're going to send these out as like postcards to our families to say, hey, we're thinking of you, and these are pictures Great of Great personal touch. Yeah. That's like awesome. That. Yeah, it's, I think working in um, end-of-life care is uh, such a profound gift to be able to do that with, um, with people. Um, I, I, I don't know, being present at somebody's birth and being present when somebody is preparing to leave this earth, uh, both are incredible opportunities. And uh, yeah, just really like, it's a really special, special time. Yeah. I I really feel honored and called to do that work. And so I'm lucky to have found an organization that's in addition to that, very supportive of their employees Mm. while we're going through all this craziness. Yeah. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. I'm really, really uh, grateful that you're doing that work Um, because someday you are going to die. Someday I'm going to die and I'm going to want to be treated nicely. (laughs) So I want to teach people now, please, like, let's do it well so that, you know, we, we move things along and um, yeah, it's, it's quite a wonderful opportunity that you have. Well, thank you, Patricia, so, so much for um, talking with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know that the listeners are going to appreciate it, especially being validated about their focus fatigue, because I know I'm. <laughs>
Yeah, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you reached out and I'm glad that we could have this conversation together. It's really been wonderful. Well, that concludes our talk with Patricia Berenson. I really appreciate her spreading her knowledge about focus fatigue and trying to navigate this new system and era with COVID-19 and new healthcare practices, along with some thoughts about end-of-life care and trauma-informed care. I hope that all of you have gotten something out of this and remember to take care of one another and try to be nice to one another because as she pointed out, someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>